What's up, everybody? Welcome back to National Board Conversations. On this episode, I speak with Ray Salazar. He's a National Board Certified Teacher in Chicago, Illinois. We get into the work Ray is doing with teachers of color through the National Board process, and we get to know him more on a personal level, including learning that he's an Illinois State record holding powerlifter? Crazy story. I won't hold you much longer. Here's my conversation with Ray. Welcome to the show, Ray. How you doing today? What's up, Eddie? Happy to be here. Oh, man. Good to have you. I feel like this has been a check-in long, long and waiting, man. Yeah, we've had to, uh, we got to connect Chicago and uh, National Board a, a, lot, a lot more for this is a great Yeah, I'm hoping they can get me out there, so. <laughs> <laughs> or me out there. <laughs> right, that would be great. Get you to come to D.C. I'll show you around. Uh, all right, so we got to get started. So can you um, tell us what your current role is and give a brief intro of yourself? So for over 25 years, I've been an educator in the Chicago public schools. I've been an English teacher at neighborhood alternative selective enrollment high schools. And aside from teaching and coaching the debate team and overseeing the school newspaper, I also write a blog about education and Latino issues on chicagonow.com. And that's called The White Rhino. And we'll be sure to link to that in the in the show notes. So that way you guys can check it out for us. Uh, so why did you end up becoming a teacher? And what pushed you to become an English teacher? Uh... You know, the, the story I tell is that I became a teacher because I didn't become a lawyer. I <laughs> wanted to be a lawyer. That's, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I was 15 years old and I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to go to Princeton. <laughs> Princeton, man, that's over in my, that's over near me. <laughs> you know, that, that was, that was my dream. And, and a lot of that came from the TV shows, you know, the, the kids on the Cosby show and, you know, all of the sitcoms that, that I used to watch in the eighties, all of the kids went to, to big universities like that. They went away to college and, and, you know, they, um, they, they, out that path, and I wanted that path too. Um, and so I uh, got into college, and I had to declare a major, and I kind of freaked out a little bit. I didn't have any mentorship, uh, so I didn't have anybody that I could go to to guide me on, on the path toward a, a law degree. And so, you know, my parents are first uh, immigrants uh, from Mexico, and they have always valued education and uh, were big supporters of of education in, in, in our lives. Um, but you know, they didn't know the, the path. They couldn't guide me on the path toward a law degree. So when we kind of freak out and we don't know what to do, we revert to what we know, right? So I reverted to school and I like school and I always did well in school and I felt like I belonged. So I said, well, I'm going to become a teacher. And I picked English because I was a, a pretty good reader. I've always been a good reader. I liked writing and uh, I didn't have a lot of good math experiences. So I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I didn't really see a lot of connection with history. Uh, even though I love documentaries and, and, and you know, I love learning about history, but just my education with history wasn't that great. So I, you know, I, I became uh, an English teacher, and um, I've been here for you know twenty seven years. Look at that, twenty seven years later, you're national board certified yeah. and all that. So as an English teacher, you got to have some favorite lessons. Can you, you want to share a few of those? Yeah, I just we just finished wrapping up our satire unit, and it's one of oh. one of my favorite uh, units to, to to explore, and we publish the April Fool's issue of the school paper every April. And so kids create satirical pieces inspired by The Onion and comics uh, inspired by Lalo Alcaraz and other satirists that take on issues going on in our school and they, they criticize them through humor. And it's it's a fun issue because, and it's a fun unit because it helps kids to really think and, and you know, they struggle because the whole conversation really is not about what the comic says, as you know, it's it's about what the comic doesn't say, and it's about finding the subtext. 
And so, you know, kids will be like, hold on, wait a minute. This is the opposite of what we see. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, again, the whole time we're reading these texts, whether it be visual or uh, audio or written texts, you know, they, they have to keep flipping the switches to say, okay, this is the opposite. This is the opposite. And they have to find the subtext. And so then they create their pieces. And so um, it, it's, a, it's a fun, it's a fun unit to teach. And so uh, we, we, we put out the first uh, April Fool's issue for the in the last two years, because of the pandemic, we weren't able to do that. And you know, teaching satire over remote learning probably would not go over well. And I, I don't know how parents are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that being a little difficult. Like, what are you learning? <laughs> they hear some stuff coming over the speakers, like what? In the yeah. World? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, let's not do satire during remote learning. Let's go to the world in person. And so it's it's a good. It's a good experience for students and for me. And, the, you know, the other part of it that I enjoy is that I have to update that unit every single year. Like this year, by chance, you know, I believe that the universe always provides. And by chance, we had the situation with Chris Rock and Will Smith. And so the kids came yeah. in. They, and they, they didn't know who Chris Rock was. But just by chance, a, a week before that, we had watched one of his comedy clips where he criticized police brutality. And so the kids came in on Monday. They're like, Salazar, we got to talk about Chris Rock. We got to talk about Chris Rock. And so it's a valuable opportunity to talk about you know, the, the boundaries of, of satire and then, you know, just kind of how people react to satire. And it was just uh, another good opportunity to connect our classroom to the real world. Oh, man. So it sounds like you really enjoy that. So yeah. um, it's, not, oh, I can, it's not always easy to be a teacher. What keeps you coming back? Um, I think that. You know, it's always my relationships with students, and that's always been the best part of my job. I think that I gain inspiration by watching the young people that I teach persevere and aspire and dream and struggle, and that keeps me going, and it keeps me connected to what's really happening in the world, and that's something that I uh, find super valuable because you know, I, I, you know, I, I read the news, I listen to the news, I keep up with what's going in the world, but there's nothing like hearing about real world situations from people going through it, living through it firsthand. And I think that connecting with these young people and watching them grow as writers helps me become a better writer because I have to practice what I preach. And so I share with them that the same struggles that they go through are the same struggles I go through. And I get rejections when I make pictures and I have editors tell me that I have to revise stuff and uh, you know, I struggle to figure out what to say and how to say it. So I think it's, it's been a good combination of watching young people find their way in the world. And, and it helps me carry out my, my own purpose, which is to help other people develop their confidence and competence as writers. That's awesome, that's awesome. So you're national board certified, renewed in 2019. We love to see it. Um, what was your journey like? Uh, what was it like for you? Why did you end up pursuing? Yeah. I met the national board by chance. <laughs> Back to very early in my career in the late 90s, uh, at the end of the school year, this is pre-internet in schools, my there <laughs> uh, handed me a flyer, <laughs> a paper flyer. Oh, man. Way, you know, it, was like, it was like the second to the last day of school. And uh, yeah, she just said, here you go. And I looked at it and it's like summer job opportunity. Evaluate teacher portfolios for national board. I'm like, what the hell is national board? <laughs> I didn't know what national board was. 
And then I saw, how am I going to evaluate the portfolios that people go for this national certification? And I saw that all you had to have was three years of experience. And I was like, what? Like, how, how does this even work? But, you know, hey, it was a summer gig for two weeks. And so I signed up and it was a group of teachers who were in the room as assessors for the, the English part. I was the only teacher from Chicago Public Schools. The rest were from the suburbs. And that was how I got introduced. And I learned how National Board prepares people to thoughtfully and carefully evaluate these portfolios. And that's where I learned about bias uh, training and bias awareness. That professional development session was my introduction to rubrics, because rubrics were not in vogue when I went through college in the early 90s. Uh, and I found it incredibly meaningful. And I appreciated having to look at the work of other teachers and you know, remaining true to the evaluation process, which is valid and you know, well calibrated. And so that's how I met the National Board and started believing in it. And then I stepped away. And so that was in the early, like I said, the late 90s. And then about 10 years later is when I actually went to National Board. So what was your journey like? What was your personal journey like going through the certification process? So I decided to do it finally because I thought, you know what, I've been doing this long enough and it's time. There was an opportunity in Chicago to go through a program, through a cohort, but I didn't want to do it because part of it is, you know, my own stubbornness and <laughs> myself, you know. Um, but the other part of it was I felt confident enough because I had had that National Board experience, not only as an assessor, but National Board was, was so happy with my performance as an assessor that they invited me back the following year to be a trainer of assessors. And I got to spend three wonderful weeks working with some amazing people in Clemson, South Carolina. And so I knew the assessor side, I knew the trainer side. And so I said, no, I, I got this. I know enough about this, this process to go for it. And so I signed up and I did the whole process independently. And you know, I had some help from a couple of, of good teachers who I would go to and, and run ideas by. And, um, you know, it was stressful. <laughs> I can imagine. There were, there were a couple of times when I woke up in the middle of the night and just like started throwing papers around and I'm doing this. It's not even worth it. <laughs> um, you know, but, but I did it and, and it was it, it, to see myself teach was uh, one of the most eye-opening and reflective and meaningful and life-changing uh experiences of my life <laughs> because you, you think you look one way and you're doing things a certain way and then you watch yourself teach and uh, I told my students after the first couple of recordings I was like you know what we need to do this over again because I talk a lot and they just looked at me like yeah yeah you do <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was good but you know I it got me to really think about why I do things why kids sit where they sit? How are they arranged? Why do I go to certain kids first and not other kids first? Um, you know, how do I make sure that there aren't opportunities for kids to just like zone out? Because I saw that in one of the videos. I was watching it and I, I said something and like I saw it in like three or four kids' faces. I was like, there they go. He just tuned out. She just tuned out. He just tuned out. Like I, I saw it happen in the video. I was like, okay, I got to think about how I set this up so that those are. And it, it was it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. And you know, and then I got the scores back, and it's a little humbling, you know, because you know you think you're doing all this amazing work, and then you get the scores back, and it's like, okay, I I, I didn't get all fours. Okay, all right. 
<laughs> a little hurt here. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, I guess, okay, maybe all right. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I achieved that first time, and I went for it again. Uh, and it, it's something that has just remained, I guess, it's an essential part of, of my of my identity now as a teacher. Uh, and aside from that, then then that lets all these other opportunities, writing blogs for the for the national board and, and helping other teachers go through the, the process now with this new cohort through ISU's uh, National Board Resource Center. And so I, I you know I remain committed and, and hopefully um, these are efforts that can contribute to the diversification of more national board candidates. Yeah, and you just touched on it. Uh, you're doing work with the National Board Resource Center down at Illinois State to help support teachers of color through the process. Super excited, and I'm super excited to see the work you do. First, and thank you for your work. And second, can you talk about how that all came together for you? Yeah, I got to give a, a shout out to, uh, to my friend and colleague, Jackie Fabian, who works for the National Board. And she and I connected uh, a year or two ago through Instagram when... Uh, you know, National Board invites teachers to, to oversee or to run the Instagram account for a day. And that's how Jackie and I met because I mm-hmm. ran the account one day and she ran it the other day. And I met her and she met me. And but I should uh, take credit for that because yeah, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that was you brought us together. So actually, Eddie Santiago brought me into the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so when the opportunity came up this year and they asked Jackie, Center asked Jackie knew of anybody she recommended me and I was, I was and it's it's been a good uh, a good experience this is the first year of it and there are about eight candidates you know we want that program to grow we want more teachers of color to, to get involved and to have the confidence to feel like no I'm doing good work this isn't about having to prove myself because I think that's what keeps teachers of color out of it and I, I'll be honest with you Eddie if I had not gone through that process as an assessor by chance that summer in the late 90s, I don't think I would have gone for National Board because I just, there's, there's not enough information or experiences in my district or in, in, in my schema to make me believe now that without that experience, this is something that I should do. And so I think that's something that we need to work on a little bit more is, is helping teachers, especially teachers of color, see this as an opportunity for, for personal growth and for a way to truly improve the way that we teach and, and that ultimately benefits students. So do you think being an assessor helped you get ready going into the process when you began? Like you think yes. it, it provided like a good sturdy starting ground for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I understood um, how to, um, I understood the process. And, and I, but I think more than that, I believed in the process. I understood and I knew without a doubt that this assessment, that this evaluation process could be trusted because I saw how much you know, attention to detail was put into the training materials and how we were trained to not deviate from that training because everything needed to, um, you know, to align with, with the experience of it. And, and I understand that. And there, there were good uh, training experiences, good, good, good uh, learning lessons there. So that, that helped. And so I understood just, you know, what portfolios look like. And I also understood that there are so many different ways that a person can achieve. And that's one of the, the big messages that, that I give people who are going through the process. You know, people say, well, well, what do I have to do? I'm like, well, there's lots of ways that you can do this. Uh, number one, we have to understand the standards of what is it that we're supposed to be doing and what is it that's being measured. 
Number two, we got to understand the directions. <laughs> Let's make <laughs> the directions. And we understand what we have to videotape, what we have to submit. And then, you know, number three, we're taking a look at the rubrics and, and really understanding what accomplished teaching looks like and doing some effective experiences uh, so that we can figure out how we show that we're making progress toward those goals. So why do you think it's important for teachers of color to take on the national board process? There are so many teachers of color in our country who are doing amazing work. And either they don't see that it's at the level that they should, or um, they feel like it's another situation where they have to prove I mean, that was my experience going to college. You know, I, I just felt like I got into college. And I do want to say that I never felt like I didn't belong. I was a first-generation college kid in 1990s when I started. I was 17 years old. Um, and I, I paid my way through college. We didn't have the money at home for my parents so, to help me, so I worked my, my way through college. You know, tuition was, was lower back then, but so was the min minimum wage. I mean, I was, you know, making three thirty-five. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, when I actually started, I was making two eighty-five because I was 15 years old, so they, they paid me less than minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I never felt like I didn't belong. I've asked my friends who are also in their late 40s now, first-generation college kids, hey, did you, did you ever feel like you didn't belong in college? And all of them have said what I said. It's like, no, hell no. <laughs> I belonged in college. I was lost. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was broke, but academically, I was fine. And, you know, I would put my backpack on, and I would walk around the Paul University's Lincoln Park campus like, you know, like I belonged because mm -hmm. I felt alone. And to this day, I still every time I go back to campus, it just is like, yeah, this is it. This is this is where I belong. <laughs> and so I, I, but you know, aside from that, it was always like I just have to work so hard, and I have to work harder for everything that you know people around me, especially white and affluent people around me, are not working as hard for because their life circumstances allow them to have access to other experiences and resources that first generation people of color don't have access to. Right. And, you know, and, and these days, you know, we talk about, you know, black indigenous people of color and, and that's the, the group that I'm referring to now. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's always about having to prove yourself, you know, and, and even when I started teaching at one of the first schools where I worked, you know, I had to remind one colleague and explain to him, no, I am not the Spanish teacher. I am the English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> this is a colleague. This is a colleague. Oh, oh, I thought you taught Spanish. No. No, actually, hey. just, you know, it's just, the guy struggled a little bit. Uh, no, I'm an English teacher. And so always the, the sense, you know, that we feel that we have to just keep climbing and proving ourselves and proving ourselves. So when we hear of an opportunity sometimes like the National Board, people are like, man, I got to prove myself again. And and that's not what this is about. This is, this is about reflecting. This is about growing. It's definitely not about having to jump through hoops or to, to overcome a sense of inequities. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So what advice would you give the current candidates going through the process? I would say start learning about national board way before you go through the process. You know, and it can start by just checking out the website. It can start by talking to other national board teachers and just becoming aware of it. I think if more teachers of color learned about national board in their first year, in their second year, you know, 
and just learn like, look, this is something that you aspire to one day when you're ready. I, I think it would definitely help people feel more confident about it. I think the second thing I would say is know when the time is right. You know, and, and I think I waited 10 years after I, I had my experience with National Board. Number one, because I wanted to get to graduate school. I went back to Nepal to, to get my master's in writing, and I did that part-time. So after four years of graduate school, I just wanted to breathe for a little bit <laughs> and just uh, right. work. That's it. You know? and then I also became a dad during that time, so I wanted to make sure that I was dedicating some time to, to my son. Uh, but I, I think it's, number one, it's know, when the, know about it first. Number two is know when the time is right for you to go through the program. I think that the support systems have changed and now people have options in Chicago. They can go through the Chicago Teachers Union program, which is a two-year commitment, and that uh, generally requires people to show up once a week for two years. Um, the other option that they have now through ISU's National Board Resource Center is to um, sign up for this program, which is also a two-year commitment, but the meeting, there are only 12 meetings throughout the year. So the, you know, the commitment is, is different and that you know, works for some people. Um, and so I, I, it's, it's taking advantage of those resources. And, you know, there's also the option of doing it on your own. And that's, you know, that, that's a process that, that, can be, that can be done as well. And, and I think the biggest thing is making sure that we understand that this is a process where the ultimate goal is personal and professional growth. It's not about, you know, I have to get it. And if I don't get the certification, that means I'm not a good teacher. That's not what this is about. This is about recording ourselves, being selective about the data that we want to look at in, in our world and what makes sense in our classroom, and really asking ourselves, how is my teaching making a difference in the academic and social lives of our students? I got no better words to add to that. All right, so we're going to get to know you a little bit, get to know younger Ray. <clears throat> so on, on the end of this. So um, what was it like growing up with you? We got 15-year-old Ray in the neighborhood. What were you getting into? What kind of music did you listen to? What kind of food were you eating? What was you about? Oh, I mean, growing up on the southwest side of Chicago in, in the 80s, I mean, it was house music, house music all night. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. You know, we had WBMX. Uh, we had a local radio station at the Boys and Girls Club called WCYC. And it was, it was house music. And the school dances were house music. And that was it. Um, you know, I, I tell my students now when... And I chaperone some of the dances, you know, how uh, just how good it feels to, to see so many different types of music because um, you know, there's, there's Spanish music that's played, and we got bachata, we got reggaeton, and we got all kinds of stuff. Sometimes I play, you know, some, some uh, hip hop and I don't, I don't know, some of this trap music or something. You know? <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was a teenager, we didn't speak Spanish in school. You just, if you spoke it, you didn't speak it at school and you didn't. Uh, really uh, show your, your, your Latino side. That was, you know, there was, there was a big line between who you were, this English-speaking, you know, American kid at school, and who you were at home. Um, in my home, we grew up speaking English. My mom came to this country when she was 14. She speaks very good English. My dad got here when he was 20. He spoke enough good English. <laughs> English to, and we communicated in English at home. You know, that was once we started school. And so uh, at 15, I started working at Burger King. That was my first job because I said, oh, I think I need a summer job. You know, And so I got off the bus one day and 
walked in and asked for an application and they interviewed me on the spot and like, all right, come back so you can meet the manager tomorrow and uh, they, they gave me a job. And it, it was it was a good experience and I, I learned a lot. Um, and from there, I just decided that I was going to go to college and I applied to one university. And, and, and here's the thing, Eddie, I was, um, I went to a Chicago public school, a neighborhood high school on the Southwest side. I was in a graduating class of maybe 250 students. I was in the top 10 of the class, the highest ranking male. Shout out to you. Nobody, nobody in the school pulled me aside and said, hey, what are you doing with your future? Where are you applying to college? And I applied to college on my own. I applied to one school, to DePaul University. Let me in. <laughs> and that's where I wanted to go. So it, it worked out. So things have changed so much that, you know, it's good to see that there's all these support systems for young people now. And so, you know, I, I mess with them and tell them, like, what are you stressed out about? You got all this help. You know? <laughs> <laughs> professional. What is the issue? Why are you stressing? Fill in the blanks. Like, I did it with a pencil. <laughs> you know, so um, that was it. And then, you know, college, um, I made my way through, paid my way to college, sometimes working third shift. In the summer, I'd work, work from 30 to 45 hours a week to, to make sure I had my tuition money. And, 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 and that was it. And it was it was tough sometimes, but... You know, the other part of it is that I was super, super shy when I was a kid. Super shy. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I, I don't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> As you can say, you kind of talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I say what is in, in my profession, and uh, sometimes that irritates people. And most of the time, it's the right people who need to be irritated. And, and I go from there. But I also know when I need to listen. <laughs> But I think that teaching has really helped me find my voice. And I had an interesting conversation with Eve Ewing, you know, the phenomenal sociologist and author, and she does it all. Um, I, she was talking to me, and, and I was telling her the story about me wanting to be a lawyer when I was a kid. And uh, she said, you know what, Ray? What it sounds like is, um, and I get a little choked up every time I think about this. She said, uh, what it sounds like is you wanted to work for more justice in this world. And that's that's what you do. So, yeah, I think I think that's you know that's what it is. I you know yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer, but I just I wanted to make sure that I use my talents to to make the world a little more equitable. Hey, that is like you about to get me tearing up over here. <laughs> <I feel> like... <laughs> so you touched on it a little bit earlier. You went to DePaul for undergrad and grad school. You've been in Chicago your whole life, like whole uh, life. How have you seen the city grow in all that time? I mean, there used to be a, a middle class, a real middle class, or what could be considered a middle class in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I grew up around 26th Street in Little Village. Uh, I will forever be from Little Village, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so even I, I live a little more south and a little more west now, but I still say I'm from Little Village in 26th Street. Um, and in the 70s and the 80s, there were enough, uh, working class jobs where, uh, you know, mostly dads, um, some moms, but but mostly dads, if, if they were in the family, you know, got jobs at warehouses. I mean, there was the Brock's Candy Company. There was a Coca-Cola Company. There was Entenmann's nearby. There was Motorola, uh, you know, and so there were all these warehouse jobs where even if the salary wasn't super high, it was dependable. And so once somebody was employed at these places, they knew they could count on those, on that salary every single week. They could count on their two-week vacation. They could count on their benefits, whatever those were. 
Uh, UPS was huge here in Chicago back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so uh, all of that started disappearing in, in the 90s, definitely in the 2000s. And so we've seen a disappearance of the middle class. And WBEZ did a wonderful report on this a couple of years ago where you know, there's a color-coded map. And they show what the average income was in different parts of the city in the 70s and the 80s. And now we have either you're, you know, you're living super comfortably or you're living super broke, like there is no class anymore. And so that's that's been the sad part. Um, the one of the good things though is that there has been more attention given to education in Chicago. Because I mean, when I was in high school in Chicago public school, like I said, in a Southwest Side neighborhood high school, nobody gave a damn about CPS. You know, like it was. Mostly black and brown kids, uh, middle middle. You know, we thought ourselves as middle class. <laughs> we're, some like of us, we all do, man. <laughs> some of us were a little bougie, you know. <laughs> you know, like they were, you know, you know, lower income kids, and that was it. You know, uh, you know, Whitney Young, where Michelle Obama went to high school, the population of white students there was super small. And even like in the early two thousands, if you looked at the uh, population of white students at like Jones College one of the top schools in the city now, it was like 10%, 15%. Now, at all of those selective, the four top schools in the city, the majority of the students, we can double check this, but I'm pretty sure is white. Um, talking about 30%. Um, and so, you know, it's the push of, you know, uh, affluent, uh, mostly white families who have come into the city, you know, from the burbs, all of a sudden, you know, they want to come in here. And I blame sex in the city, <laughs> I blame friends, because, you know, Carrie Bradshaw lives in the city, so we got to live in the city. Chandler lives in the city, or we got to live in the city. And so all of a sudden, the city becomes this attractive place. But the disadvantage of that is that it starts pushing out people who have roots here. And so doing some research on you, I found oh. out you are a oh. power lifter. Yes. <laughs> How does that happen, man? And not like a hobby. You are like an Illinois state record holding powerlifter, man. That's awesome. Like, what's the story behind that? Oh, Eddie, you know, it's it's um my mentor shared a quote with me, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And he said that, uh, and I'm going to mess it up right now, but it goes something like, uh, you know, humans are not born on the day that our mother gives life to us. Uh, you know, life demands that we give birth to ourselves over and over throughout our lives. And so in so another thing when I was 15, I wanted to be an athlete. You know, I mean I used to <laughs> Harold Lewis. I used to love watching the Summer Olympics. I wanted to be a track star. Oh I man. Little Ray was about to be running at 100. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to do the hurdles, bah, bah, you know. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, but there were no opportunities to, to do that in Little Village in the 80s. So, you know, just I'm a dreamer. I'm, I'm a dreamer. And so I started running in, in my 20s. I did the Chicago Marathon a couple of times and I took, I loved it. But then in the winter, I don't run because there's a lot of snow and ice and it's cold and it's just uncomfortable. But then I struggle with the winter blues. Like the winter blues are real for me. Without, oh, the, without staying active, I'm just like, oh, I'm like a plant. I just like wither. Oh, I just, you know, unhappy and grumpy and everything. So I did some weightlifting when I was in college. I took a weightlifting class, but I didn't really click with it. And so then uh, in 2016, the, the late fall of 2016, I said, I got to join a gym. I got to keep myself busy this winter. There was a neighborhood gym, a family-owned neighborhood gym called Mr. Biggs on 63rd by Pulaski Avenue Road. And I joined. I walked in there because there was no contract, family-owned, kind of a simple place, but it has everything that you needed. And I just wanted to do this for about four months. All the other things I went to one like a year commitment. I said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, like, I'm not doing that. 
Well, once I started there, I met power lifters, and the owner's sons were trainers, our trainers, and so I signed up to, to train with one of them, and summer of 2016, I started learning how to deadlift and squat, and he taught me how to bench better, and uh, kind of did it, and then three years ago, I just kind of said, no, I think I'm going to do this a little more seriously, and I started, you know, challenging myself, and thinking about training programs, and there was a really good community at, at the gym, and unfortunately, during the pandemic, um, the owner just decided that it was, it was time for him to retire, and, and he closed the, the gym. Um, and so we all had to go on. And, man, we were, we were, we were sad, man. Like, we all, like, <laughs> like, you know, in tears, like, oh, did you hear? They're closing. <laughs> All the memories, man. <laughs> oh, man, it was rough. We were like, what are we going to do? It's like, you know, and I, part of our identity had been torn from us. <laughs> um, and so I, I yeah, I, I took a powerlifting, and uh, I competed this March uh, with the United States Powerlifting Association here in Illinois. I set three state records for the squat, the bench, the deadlift for my age group and my weight class. And I'm competing again in May one more time. And, uh, oh, that's amazing, man. Like, love it. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible challenge. It keeps me humble. Uh, and it's another way to connect with students because powerlifting is becoming popular among young people now. And so once the kids find out that I'm a powerlifter, it's, you know, kids that I don't know will come up and say, hey, how you doing? Look, I hit a PR and they'll ask me questions and we'll talk about it. And it's just a really, really good Really good experience, and it keeps me healthy and out of trouble. So it's good. <laughs> that's amazing, man. Like I recently got into Boulder, and I feel like that's kind of like my rebirth right now is uh, being a rock climber. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, fantastic, man! Fantastic, yeah. Uh, so you got any other hobbies that you um that you get into? Um, you know, aside... well, like powerless is not even really a hobby. That thing is yeah. like a record. <laughs> so do you yeah, have any I, hobbies? <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I still want to learn how to play the guitar. And I bought myself a guitar a little bit before the pandemic. And, you know, I, I know about seven chords, and I'm getting there, you know. Like, okay, think, shout out to you, man. Like, guitar's not easy, man. I played when <laughs> I was a little kid, and that thing, like, as soon as I stopped playing for a second, it was gone. Yeah, it, 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 it's, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle, but, but uh, you know, I, I'm a pretty good typer. I took a typing class in high school, and I said, like, what? It's because I had to do K, comma, K, K, comma, K. <laughs> My fingers are, you know, pretty, pretty agile. Uh, but, and then... The, the dream, the goal with the guitar is to be able to play California Dream in one day in its entirety. That's oh, nice. Um, and so, you know, I do that and, you know, I, I write, I find opportunities to write. Um, but honestly, Eddie, I think, you know, in the post-pandemic world, um, the, the experiences that I appreciate most are just, you know, being at peace and finding quiet moments to just meditate um, and reflect and read. Um, right now I'm reading a biography of Curtis Mayfield, the big 70s uh, soul musician, uh, funk music musician. He wrote the, the soundtrack for Superfly. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Born and raised, uh, and his son wrote it. Uh, his son wrote it. With, oh, that's uh, awesome. With, with, uh, with another writer. And uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Curtis Mayfield is, is one of my heroes. Um, you know, I, I got a chance to read Muhammad Ali's autobiography. I got my Muhammad Ali t shirt on today. He's another one of my heroes. And so I just, you know, I've really been looking to accomplished men of color and, and following their stories and, and, and looking for, you know, what's the wisdom that I can gain. Um, I read um, Bruce Lee's or the uh, Bruce Lee's daughter's book about um, her dad. And, um, you know, it's, it's finding time to just appreciate other people's ideas. I think that's, that's been the biggest part of, of my, you know, in this, but hopefully will be a post-pandemic. Hopefully. Our last thing, man, where can the folks find you on social media? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at White Rhino Ray. And if you go to chicagonow.com, you can read my blog, The White Rhino. And uh, there's a nice Facebook page that you can like and follow me along with. All right. Thanks, Ray. It was really a fun conversation. I feel like I learned so much more about you. <laughs> Eddie, thank you. Thank you for amplifying the voice of teachers of color. Thank you to the National Board for just being an amazing uh, partner and, and source of, of inspiration and guidance. No problem. We'll definitely check in again. Ray is such an amazing storyteller. It was great to talk to him and learn more about the work he's doing in his community. Be sure to check out the White Rhino blog linked in the show notes and follow Ray on social media. I just want to say thanks again to Ray for joining the show and thank you for listening to National Board Conversations. Be sure to stay connected with us on all your social media platforms and we'll see you next time.